Lord, we do love you. And Lord, we're thankful this morning, Lord, that we can take a break from the, from the weariness of a week. And Lord, that we can spend time this morning, Lord, with those of like-minded faith. Lord, that our hearts can be encouraged, that we can fellowship with those of like faith. And uh, Father, this morning, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, encourage us through your word, uh, that I would be able to effectively communicate through your spirit. Uh, Lord, it would encourage my heart yesterday morning when I read. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So I, I texted out a, an idea, but the more that I thought about it, the more that I thought that a better title for the lesson I'll give you this morning is Leading Yourself Through a Crisis. Leading Yourself Through a Crisis. And so um, there's too much to go through this morning um, in terms of uh, going through all these, but I would encourage you this week to, uh, I would encourage you this week to just read Genesis 31 through about Genesis 35. Um, there is an incredible story that takes place, and sometimes when we are, uh, when we're reading the Bible, uh, these chapter breaks sometimes break up our thoughts, and sometimes we struggle to see that they're connected. And so, good morning, good morning. And so, uh, a backstory to what we're about to read in Genesis 35. It actually begins in Genesis 31. Jacob is a man who is fraught with conflict. He is a man who is facing back-to-back-to-back crisis. Have you ever been in a moment in life where it just seems like it just will not stop? Where it's wave after wave after wave. One wave in and of itself can be bad. One wave in and of itself can be a struggle. But sometimes it feels like you just can't put your feet under you and you just get hit again and again and again. And poor Jacob just can't get a break. In Genesis 31, first we see a confrontation he has with his father-in-law. Is, is that normal <laughs> with in-laws? Um, I'm just kidding. Um, so here we have Laban, and the backstory, if you know it, is that he spent 20 years with his father-in-law. He was deceived several times, and of course one might say this is very much the principle of sowing and reaping because he spent his life doing that. And next thing you know, he flees in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to provoke his father-in-law's wrath. He says he's been serving his father-in-law for 20 years. His father-in-law has changed his wages 10 times. He goes through a long list of, of every, every injustice he's suffered at the hands of his father-in-law. And so he flees in the middle of the night, and his father-in-law finds out in a couple days, and they begin to chase them. In that particular story, um, we, uh, we, we read where God appeared to Laban and said, providentially, sovereignly intervened in the life of, of Jacob. And he told Laban, his father-in-law, I don't want you to say anything to him, even good or bad. He's mine. I'm protecting him. And we see that in a lesson that we could walk away from, that sometimes you look back and just say, thank God that worked out better than I thought. You ever been there? You know, wh- whatever it may be, we look back and say, I would have never anticipated that that would have worked out because I was dreading the outcome. And how often we can look back and just say, thank God. And we realize it's not always the case, but we can say, thank God that that worked out. Um, a second crisis happens in Genesis 32 and 33. For some reason, when Jacob leaves this setting, he has the idea to send a message to his brother. Now, if you guys remember, what was the last thing his brother said to him before he, he ran? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and this isn't like a brotherly I mean, spat like he said, I'm going to, whenever dad dies, I'm going to kill him. And maybe because Jacob was leaving, he anticipated Esau was going to find out, and he tried to send a message of goodwill to his brother. We don't know. But you guys remember what the messengers came back and told Jacob when they delivered the greeting? Esau's coming. 
He's not just coming by himself. He's coming with 400 men. Okay, now, I would think all of us would sit here and say, that does not sound like a welcome party. Because after all, I mean, we recall the story of how Abraham took his trained servants about three to 400 and went defeated a city. So as next thing you know, Jacob is just panicked. And you can read the entire passage of what J- he tried to create a plan of how he would, he would sacrifice his uh, the one-fourth of the family he didn't like as much. And then, you know, the next one, you know, his slave wife's first and then ultimately Rachel last. And we find that in Genesis 33, that um, in Genesis 33, where, God, where Jacob wrestled with a mysterious man. Most commentators uh, believe that it was actually God in the flesh. It was, the, it was a Christophany, that it was Christ in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord that appeared to him, and, and Jacob would not let him go. And he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now we realize that God being sovereign God, he could have gotten away from Jacob at any time he wanted to. And sometimes when I read that passage, the only thing I could walk away from is when you're facing a crisis, a problem, just hold on to God and don't let him go. Sometimes that's all you can do. Sometimes you can only, the only thing you can do is hold on by faith because you can't see anything else happening. And all of a sudden, now we get to Genesis 34, and now we find that there's a crisis that he didn't even create. It's called the defiling of, Di- of Delilah, where a man took his daughter, defiled her, and his two sons had the brilliant idea to go in and to slaughter the entire town. At the end of, Gen- of chapter 34, Jacob is panicking. Because he is afraid that all the other nations are going to rise up. They're going to hear what his sons did, and they're going to rise up, and they're going to destroy his family. The exact wording at the end of verse 34 is he says, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Jacob is now in his third crisis, back to back to back within just a few chapters. I have often found that crises come in seasons. I don't, I don't know if it's your experience, but it seems like a lot of times, um, it seems like you just groups together. Sometimes a season comes where life is great, there are no problems, then there are seasons that come to where you just can't catch a break. And sometimes those conflict, those problems, those struggles, sometimes are they vary in intensity. Some are worse, some are not as easy. But overall, life is just not good at that moment where you're really, really struggling. And when I was reading in Genesis 35 yesterday, what stood out to me was how Jacob handled this crisis. How, not, not that he led other people, but how that he led himself through a crisis. And I'd like to give you five things this morning. This is about a 90% lesson this morning with 10% discussion mixed in. Sometimes the, the percentages are a little bit different. I would like for you to look with me in, in, in Genesis 35 verse 1. All these are back to back to back. Genesis 35 verse 1. Here we have God and His sovereignty stepping in. And He tells Jacob this, And God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Here is one of the most difficult things to do in a crisis. And that's the first thing. Sometimes we can be so perplexed by a problem. Sometimes we can be so emotionally spent with something that happens And quite honestly, sometimes we just struggle, what's my first step? And we can be seized by anxiety. We could be seized by depression. We can be, be, whatever it is, so often we can be just fraught 
with what am I even supposed to do the first time? What is the very first thing I'm supposed to do? And here is where we found a critical step where God jumped in and he told him to go to Bethel. The idea of Bethel goes all the way back to Genesis 28. If you just write it in Genesis 28, and you could read it this week, where Jacob met God for the first time. You see, I'm sure that he grew up and he heard stories from Isaac about the God of Isaac. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that he heard stories about the God of Abraham. But as of Genesis 28, he was not yet the God of Jacob. Not yet. You see, Bethel is where God became real to Jacob for the first time. As a parent, this is our prayer for our children. We can give them family devotions. We can drag them to church two to three times a week. We can play worship music constantly. We can guard what they watch and what they listen to. We can guard their friends. We can have them memorize verses. But all this ultimately, folks, is that our children have to experience God for themselves. You know, our our oldest has come home, and I can tell he's in an apologetics class because, man, he's giving me some doozies. I mean, he's come home and asked some very difficult questions. And you know what? As a parent, we should welcome those questions because it means they're wrestling through their faith because, you know, mom has told me these stories, dad has told me these stories, but now I'm trying to struggle. Is this, is this my faith? Doubtless, Jacob had heard these stories of, from Isaac and Jacob had heard about the God of Abraham, but the Lord was not yet the God of Jacob. And what we see, folks, is that Bethel began to be a turning point in the life of Jacob. And one might ask, well, why is this important? Why is it important that he had this experience? If you are going to lead others through a crisis, you have to first be able to lead yourself. If you, whether it is you're a spouse and you're trying to help your spouse through a hard time, whether it is you are a leader in where you work, whether it is you are a parent and you're trying to lead your children, Folks, we ourselves have to have that level of faith. In that moment of crisis, we tend to, we need to revisit Bethel to get our our thinking straight. And so uh, a question for you is, when or where was your Bethel? Can you think to a place in your life where God became real to you for the first time? In those moments where you're struggling, when it just seems like problem comes, your faith is shaken, you're emotionally perplexed, you're emotionally spent, do you have a place where God became real to you for the first time? Because, folks, that faith is the foundation of, of, of our actions, what it is that we're supposed to guide us. You know, the songwriter even said, how do I know that he's real? How do you, how do you, you ask me how I know he lives, and, and we say, I know he's real because... He lives in my heart. We can go and we can have an evidentialist perspective, and I want to know every answer there is in the Word of God. I want to be able to ask God this question, this question. I will believe if I can have absolute faith, if I can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, folks, we realize that there's always going to be questions that can't be answered. And ultimately, we realize that the solidifying of one's faith comes from a personal experience with God. And as parents, we pray often, Lord, open the eyes of our children. Open their eyes so that they can see God for themselves. It's not just my God or my wife's God, but that they, they experience God for themselves. Jacob was, 
Jacob was about to go, was able to go back to Bethel in chapter 34 because he had already been there the first time. So in your moments of struggle, you need to get alone with God first. In those moments of struggle where you are just beside yourself, you're in an emotional tailspin, you don't know what to do. Folks, you have to have that experience with God to where you can go to Him in those moments. So the first thing we see that Jacob did to, to go through this struggle was returning to Bethel. And the second thing just seems really, really odd. The second thing we read in verse number 2. He said, So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Why does this seem like a very striking statement, a very odd statement? Why were you present in the first place? Mm-hmm. I mean, here you are. You are the son of Isaac. Yeah. You're the grandson of Abraham. What are gods doing in your house in the first place? And it leads us to, to realize a, a couple things about idols. First, the idols of our heart often creep in very subtly. I'm, they don't, I'm pretty sure they didn't appear all at once. I'm pretty sure it appeared over time. You know, we realize that all of us worship something. We are born worshipers. Every one of us worship something. We read in 1 Peter 5.8 that our adversary is extremely deceitful. He's compared to a lion. And by the way, remember that a lion only roars once he has killed his prey. Before then, he's very crafty. He's very sneaky. And we realize not only that, but Jeremiah tells us that we also have a deceitful heart. The net version says our heart is incurably sick. And what we find here is we have an adversary who is very subtle himself. We realize that we have a sinful bent, a naturally sinful bent of our own heart where we struggle. And then we're surrounded by a world of other people whose hearts are also incurably sick. Paul even expressed his own frustration in Romans. He said, the things that I know I'm not supposed to do, those are the things that I do. And the things that I know that I'm supposed to do, those are the things that I don't do. These idols of the heart come in often very, very subtly when we don't recognize them. Also, these idols of our heart are often unseen and unassuming. Things that are often innocent. Perhaps we can even say that they're just leisure. They're hobbies. They come in, and next thing you know, they are no longer just something that's in the home. They become a pillar of, of how we live. And so... David says in Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So, in a, in a brief, brief discussion this morning, we could look back and we could criticize these guys having idols in their home, but applying it to you and I, what are some subtle idols of our heart that we struggle with? Ooh, I'm going to put down the word leisure. Finances. Comfort. Ooh, that sense of belonging. I was telling my staff this week that we sometimes kind of make fun, not really make fun of kids. We, 
we kind of look down and say, ah, you know, kids so often they get sucked in by that sense of belonging. But how often do we do the very same thing as adults? We just kind of make it look a little more cool, right? A little more sophisticated. Not what else? No, it's not. It's not. What else? Pleasure. Pleasure. What gives me joy? So there's a book by Kevin DeYoung talking about uh, crazy busy, how often we are addicted to busy. It's a small book. It's good thoughts in it. (laughs) Family. Family is a great thing. But at the same time, do we get so sucked into family that we lose our sense of who we were made to worship? We, we look back at the disciples and we can sometimes, you know, you know, we sometimes back and look back at guys like the disciples. We kind of look down and say, ah, oh, they didn't get it. I don't know how they didn't get it. Or we look at the, the children of Israel, the sons of Israel and say, why were there idols in the home? Uh, but in, in so doing, sometimes we struggle to see how we do the very same thing in our own life. And so first thing is remembering Bethel. Going back and remembering that there was a personal place where my faith, be, where, where the, the faith of my parents became mine. The faith of fill in the blank became my faith, where God became real to me, because that is the starting point. The second thing is, Lord, my heart is so deceitful, sometimes I can't even see the idols of my heart. And that is to where, Lord, help me, help me to, to not only see the things that I know are wrong, but what about the things that my flesh doesn't want me to know? The things that my flesh doesn't want to recognize? That's the second thing. The third thing I noticed is in verse 3. Verse 3, he says this. Jacob's still talking here, and it's interesting, folks, that his faith has grown. Because at one point in time, he himself did not even have the strength of faith. But now he's leading others. That we see through Christ is that his faith is slowly building each and every time becoming a man of character and a a leader in his home. In verse 3, he says, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar, folks, this is so good, to the God who answers me. Theologically, we know God does. But do you believe it? And do you give praise for it? We're going to come back to that. He, look, notice what he says. And he has been there with me wherever I have gone. He has been with me everywhere I've gone. In a moment of crisis, we get what's called that fight or flight response. And it literally seizes the, our ability just to think logically. And in those moments, we have a tendency to forget the goodness of God. In times where he has proven himself, where he has answered me and where his presence has gone with me. The adversary is not a respecter of persons, and he, he, in this case, Satan is not only increasing the frequency, but he can also increase the intensity of the crises that we're dealing with. I started journaling last summer, um, and I just start. I've mentioned several to you. I kind of changed the way I was doing my Bible reading last year, and so now I'm reading shorter passages with journaling. And I just started in Psalms last year. And, um, and this specific phrase, I knew it was somewhere in the book of Psalms. I just couldn't remember where it was. And I'd done a few searches, and I just couldn't find the verse. And so I came, up, I came across a verse in Psalms where it talked about the God who hears, the God who answers. And I thought, that's where it's at, and I wrote it down. And then I came across it again a couple chapters later. 
And then I read it again a couple chapters later. And next thing I know, I am just finding in Psalms again and again and again where God is a God who, who listens. God is a God who hears and God is a God who answers. And I didn't count the number of times I went to my journal yesterday and I just wrote down every single time in reading through Psalms last year where the psalmist, Asaph, Moses, whoever penned that psalm to where we are reminded that God is a God who hears. God is a God who listens. God is a God who answers. So many other religions is what, what do I have to sacrifice enough for my God to hear me? How much pain do I have to put myself through for God to recognize me? Uh, the Bible says that he is close to those that are of a broken heart. Psalm 18.6 says that, that when I speak, that my voice reaches his very ear. And Jacob looks back on all the goodness of God in his life, and he is telling in the moment of crisis to where he does not know how this whole thing is going to, to fall. He, he tells his family that, that there's an altar there that I built in Bethel the first time, and that this altar was to the God who answers. This is the God who has been with me everywhere that I've gone. And as I was listening to um, the radio this morning, uh, Phil Wickham's song on, uh, came on this morning, and of course it just, um, this is our God. And in, and in that song, he has a phrase about the, the altars in the wilderness that remind us about God's faithfulness. The idea of those altars is that every time that someone saw that altar in the wilderness, that it, it was a memorial. It reminded them of something. And folks, do you have any way that you keep track of God's goodness in your life? Where in moments of crisis that you can go to a journal, where you can go to something to where you could remind yourself God was faithful when this happened. When we didn't know what this health test would reveal, he was faithful. Uh, in moments that maybe that it didn't work out the way that I had hoped, God was gracious and he gave comfort and peace. Because folks, in those moments where we, where we are facing a problem, we are facing a crisis, we so often forget the goodness of God in the land of the living. It's almost as if none, all the things that he's done in the past, we just we forget about because this is a problem we're dealing with now. And David's reminding, and again, his faith is growing. He has gone from being a deceiver to being now being someone who is beginning to see God working in his life. And now he is reminding other people of God's goodness during a crisis. It's one thing when I could talk about God's crisis when it's over. It's one thing I want to talk about God's goodness when it worked out the way that I had hoped. They still did not know what was going to happen. Jacob had no way of knowing what the last thing was going to do to his family. And folks, sometimes in the middle of our struggle, one of the best things we can do is thank God for his goodness, even if we don't know how it's going to, to end. Psalm 3 is just a beautiful passage. It's a longer passage, but as I read it yesterday, I thought I, just, I can't help but read uh, most of the chapter. Now, by the way, in Psalm 3, David is facing his own crisis because he's running from his son who's trying to kill him. That's a bad day. And Psalm 3, uh, there's a, a really great song. It's either Preston Wood Tabernacle or Brooklyn Tabernacle sing about this, this psalm. And David, in his crisis, in a cave, running for his life, family turmoil, family drama, says this, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. And I believe the King James says there's no hope for him in God. 
And there are moments, quite honestly, where we might be looking at a situation and we say, well, I don't see any hope. And folks, that is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel speaks of hope when there is none. And so here is David going to Bethel. Here is David reminding himself of God's goodness in the midst of a turbulent time in his life. And he says this, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory, and you're the lifter of my head. I mean, in those moments where our heads are down, we're depressed, we're discouraged, he is the one who can lift our soul. He is the one that can lift our spirit. David said, what I did was I cried aloud to the Lord, and look, folks, and he answered me. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me. He says, I lay down and slept, which, by the way, there's some really great practical advice there about when you're struggling, rest. Sometimes one of the best things you can do is try to sleep and try to rest, go on a walk, take a break from just the busyness, the craziness. And he says, I slept and I awoke. And again, we see the goodness of the Lord because he woke up. And notice what he said, for the Lord sustained me. And he says, for that very reason, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have, set, who have set themselves against me all around. Psalm 90, verse 1, we read, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. King James Version says, our refuge in, in all generations. In Psalm 120, verse 1, the psalmist says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. The fourth thing that we, we find here in Genesis 35 is that then they responded to God's will of command. And I specifically use that phrase because we looked in chapter 5 in Ephesians about, well, what is God's will? Well, there's a sovereign will, uh, but then there's also will of command. What is it that God wants me to do? And we know in Scripture there are several things that even though we don't know, there's not specific direction about God, should I take this job? Or God, how should I approach this situation? There are things very clearly in Scripture to where we know that we're supposed to do. In other words, when you don't know what to do, you do the next right thing according to God's word. And we read in verse 4, so Jacob had told them, I want you to give me your idols. And so how did his, his household respond? The Bible says that they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And so Jacob hid them um, under the terebinth tree that was in Shechem. And so what specific thing? This is re- the first question is rhetorical. The second one is not necessarily But when we think about when we're dealing with something, what is God's Holy Spirit telling you to do? Sometimes we realize we don't know. But then there's other times we absolutely do know, but we might just be afraid to step out into the unknown. I tell my staff quite frequently, embrace the uncomfortable. Embrace the uncomfortable, because if you don't embrace the uncomfortable, you never know how God's going to work in your life. But... The question for you, the question for you is what, what does the unknown always require? Faith. See, so often we, we look at faith and it's, yes, it's stepping out into the unknown. Yes, it's putting faith in God. But sometimes faith is also just as manifest by maintaining your faith through a crisis. Sometimes it's not the unknown that's getting us, it's what's known that we're struggling with. The fifth thing, and this is what Derek was mentioning a moment ago, is we find here where Jacob then rendered worship to the Lord. This is where in those moments that your heart is seized, these moments that you're struggling, the moments you don't have peace, 
the moments that you don't know what to do, you're logically struggling, you're emotionally struggling, those are the times where we need to get along with the Lord. We read in verse 6 and 7, And Jacob came to Luz, that's called Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, which is interpreted the God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. The first time Jacob found himself at Bethel, we began to see that he believed in the Lord. And, and if you go back and, and look at um, when that first happened, he was saying, well, God, if you'll do this, then I'll believe. And if you do this, then I'll believe. And if you deliver me safely from the hand of my brother, then I'll believe. It was a lot of if statements. And now we, we see that there is a hinge point in the life of, of Jacob to where his, his nature begins to be transformed, almost kind of like being transformed by the gospel, like we've been talking about in Ephesians, where there is a faith that is now growing inside of him, and his, his character is changed from being a deceiver because we can see plenty of examples from his past where he was a deceiver, he was a supplanter, he lied, he cheated. And all of a sudden now we, we see that as his faith is growing, his nature is changing, which again should be reflective in your life and in mine as we are growing in faith that our life should reflect that there is a change in us. So now Jacob is returning not just as a believer, he's returning as a worshiper. We talked about worship uh, before in class, and two, two reminder plugs from that is one, worship gives us perspective. Worship gives us perspective. So let's be real. A crisis is a problem that cannot be discounted. It can't be marginalized. It can't be swept aside like it's not a big deal. It could be cancer, sickness, tragedy, health, finances, family. It could be the loss of a job. I mean, these are things that would be considered real, something that would shake anybody. And many times, they can happen back to back to back, happening in seasons, and we are reeling from how do I handle all this? How do I even get through this when other people are depending on me? These are the things that weigh our hearts, the things that make us lose sleep, that make our blood pressure rise. These are the things where peace is evasive. Emotion, and, and we are so emotionally spent that we are physically exhausted. Have you ever been there? Okay. But... The beautiful thing about worship is that it takes our focus away from the depth of our problem and it throws it next to a God who is infinitely greater than all of our problems combined. One of my favorite verses in Psalms, Psalm 139, 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. Just think about that. The darkness can be very dark at times. And the psalmist steps back and says, but it's not dark to him. The night is bright as the day, for, the, for darkness is as light with you. And it was John the Apostle who wrote that, that the darkness has not overcome the light. And John 1. Second thing is that worship focuses on a person. If we're not careful, Bethel just becomes a place. But he said, it's not just Bethel. He said, then I am the God of Bethel. It's not just a religion. It's not just a book. It's about a person. It's about a God who wants a relationship 
with those that follow him. In Genesis 31.12, he told him, I am. Now, granted, they didn't translate it as Lord, but later we realize that I am um, comes in the life of, of Moses when God introduces himself as the I am, as the Yahweh, as the, the self-existent one. If we're not careful, we institutionalize our faith and it becomes routine. It becomes what we do. And it, we simply go to church because it's what we do. And then we read where God says, I am the God of Bethel. I am the self-existent one whose power supersedes and overcomes all of that. Psalm 55, 22, we are invited in where he says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Psalm 15, 2, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. I will worship him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. A few thoughts, a few thoughts from this. A crisis will test the resolve of our faith. We read in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 10, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he at the proper time may exalt you. And notice it's the exact same thing that we just heard from Psalms. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is not a distant God who just sits up in heaven. We are invited to have a personal relationship with a God who cares. He continues and says, so be sober-minded, be watchful because of this adversary who's deceitful. He's, he's prowling around. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are experienced by your brotherhood all throughout the world. And this morning as we were coming in, Matthew West's song uh, came on. Um, uh, what is the name of that song? Oh, um, where we just tell everybody that we're okay. Yep. What's the name of that song? If, if we're honest. If we're honest, thank you. And, and so often we say, how are you doing? How are you doing? And our typical response is, I'm fine. Our leg is like not, not present today. Our arm is chopped off. We're bleeding, but we're fine. You know? and, and Peter's encouraging here and saying, the suffering that you're going through, folks, other people in this room are going through something too. And even though we're not saying that there's, a, there's comfort and misery in company, but at the same time, our heart can be encouraged because sometimes, quite honestly, we do feel alone. And he says the same thing is happening throughout the world. And he says, after you have suffered a little while, and folks, there's great comfort in that statement, just a little while, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he is the one who will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and to establish you. Two more. Constant crises remind us of a greater hope. Folks, hope is, hope is the theme of the gospel. We read in Hebrews where we read all these people who went by faith, by faith, by faith. Specifically, it says that they died in faith, not ever even seeing the promise of God. You realize the struggle is for Abraham that he died never seeing the promise of God fulfilled? But it didn't change his resolve, the fact that God was still faithful to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And what gave them hope here is it says they received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar... And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who spoke thus made it clear that they were seeking a homeland. And in verse 16 it says that they desired a better country. Folks, this would be a miserable existence if this was the greatest thing that we could possibly experience. We live in a world that is broken by sin. That is fraught with problems. Health. People. Ourselves. 
And here we have a God in His infinite grace say that, that you're just pilgrims and strangers. And yes, suffering for a little while, but folks, we have a greater hope. And in those moments of struggle, those moments of conflict where we are seized by not knowing what to do or we're struggling, folks, our hope is in something so much better than what we have here and now. We put our eyes on a greater hope. And then last is that this constant crisis reminds us to refocus our priorities because unfortunately, we're still living in the broken world. (laughs) And we read in Isaiah beautiful passage have you not known have you not heard the lord is ever the lord is the everlasting god in case we forgot who he was he's giving us a reminder this is the very same god who's the creator of the earth the encouragement folks is that he never grows faint and he never grows weary we do but he doesn't his understanding is unsearchable he gives power to to those who are faint And to him that has no might, he increases strength. And perhaps you've been there. Like, you have no emotional strength left. You have no physical strength left. You have no spiritual strength left. We find here it says that he is the very same God who increases strength. And Paul said that that it is in my weakness that he is made strong. And sometimes, folks, as much as we don't like to live there, we have to be there for God to say, now I can start using you. Because otherwise, you wanted the glory yourself. He continues and says... Even young people will faint. Everybody has their breaking point. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how mature we are or how immature we are. Every one of us in this room have a breaking point. And God says, and when you're at that breaking point, I'm there for you. He says, but those who wait on the Lord, and several translations use the term hope. For the people who hope in the Lord, He is the one who renews their strength. They then will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary, and they will walk and not faint. And so, folks, the the encouragement this morning is that we have in Genesis 35, we see a man who is very human, and we see that in his life. He's a very, very human man. But yet God, through several crises in his life, that God strengthened his faith, and he was able to lead himself through a crisis. Sam? Sam?